Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week, we're going to cover an explosion. I know we do a lot of explosions and fires, but I know that stuff really well. This week, we're going to talk about the New London School Explosion. Now, before we get into this, I just want to say this story is rough. It is a school that exploded. Many, many children died. As many of you know, I'm a parent myself. And just yesterday, we lost 18 children in another school shooting. So, this is a very rough episode, and if you are not prepared to listen to something like this, you should probably save this one for later. Writing and researching this episode was rough for me personally, so if you have to take a break partway through, please do so. Just a fair warning. So with that being said, let's get into this. New London is a small town in East Texas. Like, the area East Texas isn't like the uh, West Texas explosion where it was in West Coma, Texas, not actually West Texas. This is actually in East Texas. And it is a very small town. Less than a thousand people live there, kind of small town. When it was first founded in 1855, it was just called London. The town was more or less agricultural from the founding in 1855 until right around 1930. And that all changed, as most things did in Texas, with the discovery of oil in the area. The very first oil well drilled in the East Texas oil field, the second largest oil field in the United States, was drilled just a few miles from London by a man named Columbus Marion Joyner. And this is an interesting story in and of itself. So, Joyner was, for lack of a better term, something of a scammer. Like, there was a thought that there might be oil in this area, and he thought that there was oil in the area, so he bought a bunch of land to do oil prospecting and then created a syndicate to buy, to sell to other people so that they would have part of the uh, search for oil and the whole nine yards and he could fund the whole thing. And he basically sold certificates of interest for $25 a piece. In order to convince people that it would work, he mailed an extremely truth-stretching geological report that promised oil-producing sands and that the major oil companies were producing oil already in the area. The truth was, he didn't know for sure that there was any oil in the area, and they absolutely were not already drilling for oil in the area. But to keep this going, he had to do a drill test. The first drill test showed nothing and failed because of a pipe becoming stuck in the ground, which is, you know, super convenient if you're trying to sell people that there's oil there and, oh, well, my oil rig broke down, we're going to have to do a second one. And so that's what he did a second time. The second time he sold shares with the same mail scam, and they dug a bit deeper but still found no oil, and then that drill pipe became stuck in the hole too, so he had his second excuse to start a third drill hole. Conveniently ignoring that he was using old, poorly made equipment that was bound to fail on the first two holes, he continued on with the same thing for a third time. It had worked twice before. He'd been able to convince two different sets of people that there was oil in the area and he needed to go find it, so why not try it a third time and still use old, crappy equipment that was bound to fail? And fail it did on the third time. A boiler exploded during the third attempt to drill a hole and injured two people. 
but that didn't matter because eventually he actually did strike oil. They hit oil on September 5th, 1930, and it just happened to be one of the biggest oil fields in the entire contiguous United States. This, in turn, turned London into a boomtown with people moving in from all over in order to strike it rich with black gold, a.k.a. oil. So with all these new people moving in, and they decided they needed a new post office, and so they were going to stick with the name London. But when they put in the new post office and tried to use the name London, they discovered that there was another town in Texas already named London. So they just decided to call themselves New London. Because, again, as we have covered many times, humans are really creative at naming things. The discovery of oil in and around the town brought in a ton of money and equipment and people and all sorts of things with it. They built new homes. They paved new roads. They built new churches. They built new stores. All kinds of things. And they built the New London School. The New London School was first built in 1932 and was state-of-the-art. It was a large two-story building shaped like an E when viewed from above. It was entirely made of steel concrete. The main building of the school contained classrooms for the upper elementary students, so 5th and 6th grade, and high school students, so 9th through 11th grade. Senior year was 11th grade at the time. It was weird, hard to explain. The building was absolutely state-of-the-art and cost nearly $300,000 to build, which is quite the amount of cash today. It had a ton of classrooms, science labs, home ec rooms, a shop, and a large library. The building itself was built on a slope from 3 to 6 feet, giving it the appearance of a single story when entering the front of the building. So if you're looking at the front of the building, that is the long portion of the E, so like the, the backbone of the E. That looks like one story. If you walk around the side of the building to the three prongs on the back side of the E, that is two stories because of the slope of the building. Underneath this building, in order to give it that kind of sloping look, they built a crawl space slash basement type thing underneath the classroom area. And it was just one big wide open space. There weren't any walls or anything like that inside of it. It was just one into the other, the entire length and the entire width of the building, besides back towards the back of the building where the E, the spokes go off, that part had a lower level, but the part, the spine of the E was entirely open, had a concrete floor and concrete walls all the way around, and that was it. There was nothing else in there. This area was 253 feet long by 56 feet wide and about four and a half feet tall. So, about 64,000 cubic feet of open space. Remember that part? That will be extremely important later. But just to give you an idea of how state-of-the-art this new school was, it wasn't just the school because it wasn't just, you know, 5th to 6th and then 7, 8, 9 through 11. It was the whole school was on a single campus. They had a detached gymnasium. They had a detached elementary school. They had a football field that had the first electric lights in the entire state of Texas. Like It was a whole big, brand new spanking thing. It was one of the most important buildings in the town of New London. This big, giant thing that was a testament to all the money that had been brought in due to them finding oil in the area. But back to the building itself for right now. So, 
in this underground excavated part that they didn't put anything in, the original plan was a boiler, a single boiler with a steam system, to send steams to radiators in each of the classrooms to provide heat for the winter. The school board decided that's not at all what they wanted. They wanted gas heaters. They were, of course, in oil country, and gas, natural gas comes up with oil, so why would they be using something that was different than what the school was there because of? They were there because of the oil, and they were going to use that gas and that oil to heat their school. This meant installing 72 gas heaters, each with their own gas piping and regulators, all throughout the building. These gas heaters were individually operated. A janitor would come in the morning and decide if they needed to be lit and how many needed to be lit. Basically, every day, janitor decided, hey, we need to light this one, we need to light this one, we need to light this one, or we need to light all of them. Or we can turn this one off, we can turn this one off, blah, 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 the whole nine yards, you know, that kind of thing. This wasn't a new or novel thing. Gas heating systems were in place all over the United States by this time. But critically, this required the gas piping to be run under the school in that previously mentioned 64,000 cubic feet of space. The problem then became... Well, if you have all this gas piping run underneath the school in this enclosed area, what are you doing to ventilate it if there is a leak? Remember, they decided this after the building had already been built. So they had designed it originally. The architect originally designed it for the steam radiators, the single boiler with the steam radiators. That doesn't require that much ventilation. But if you're going to change after the concrete has already been poured, it's going to be really difficult to add more ventilation. And frankly, they didn't see a reason to add more ventilation because they didn't expect there to be a leak. This was still fairly early on in the knowledge of how natural gas and all that worked. So it wasn't really an issue. Now, with the original boiler, they had installed four ventilation points in the space. Each was 11 inches by 22 inches, but they were not nearly enough. They were on the extreme end in the south side and the extreme end on the north side and on either side of both of those extreme ends. It, there was basically no ventilation in the middle of the actual building. They were absolutely going to need more ventilation space if they were going to prevent a buildup of gas, but they weren't going to do that. And then they made a second choice. Providing all that natural gas to the heaters was not cheap. It was costing somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 to $300 per month, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but that's about $6,000 per month today, so not exactly chump change. They were originally getting their gas from United Gas Public Service Company right up until January 18, 1937, when they cut off the meter. So they had metered service beforehand. They'd had refined, processed natural gas that they were using in the school that was consistently the same type of gas because it was being provided by a service. They decided they didn't want to do that anymore. Sometime around that time, the school board and the superintendent had plumbers and janitors from the school run a two-inch gas line from under the school all the way several hundred yards away from the building and hooked it into a Paradise Gasoline Residue gas line, which then gave them free gas. Well, wait a minute. How is it free? You see, in the drilling of oil, as the oil comes up to the surface, it brings natural gas that's trapped in the oil in the sands with it. Natural gas's main component is methane most of the time. 
but it also comes up with other gases such as propane and butane and other things like that, ethane, stuff like that. Most of these gases were just piped out and flared off away from the drilling rig. But if you knew what you were doing, or even if you didn't, you could run a line to one of these flare-off lines and get free gas, because they were burning it off anyway, so they didn't care who hooked up into it. And this was a regular occurrence. Basically, the entire town was running their gas lines in their houses off of these flare-off lines. And I mean, I can't really blame them. Why would you be paying for gas if you can just run a two-inch line that you can buy really cheap and just get free gas? It makes the most sense. But there's a trade-off here that nobody was really thinking about. Natural gas comes out of the ground and can have basically two types. It's not really two types, it's just kind of a descriptor for how pure the gas is, but that's the whole thing. There's wet gas and there's dry gas. Wet gas is any natural gas that has less than 85% methane by composition. So if it's 50% methane and you know 20% butane and 20% uh, propane and 10% ethane, yeah, that's 100%, then it is wet gas. If it's 85% methane and 15% butane, that is dry gas. It's a lower dry gas. It's a, it's a wetter dry gas, but it's still technically a dry gas. Because of the differences in composition, there are differences in density and burn efficiency and all that. And we'll get into that in a minute. The gas the school was receiving from United was dry gas, so it was over 85% methane. It had been refined and used for that purpose, so again, it was mostly methane, and the radiators in the school had been set up to use that mostly methane gas. When they made the switch to the free gas from Paradise, they tapped into a wet gas line but they did not change the setup to any of the radiators in the school. They were still operating under the state of the dry gas. This change in gas composition can lead to the gas not burning efficiently at the burners and allowing unconsumed gases to escape into the room. And the other issue with these wet gas lines is they're not always the same composition. It's not always, oh, it's, it's a wet gas, so it's 50% butane and 50% methane, or 20% methane, 20% butane, 30% pentane and 30% propane. That's not how it works. It fluctuates wildly. The pressures can fluctuate wildly. So you can have a really high pressure at one point and pushing out a bunch of gas, or you could have a really low pressure at one point and pushing out a little bit of gas, so little that the burner on your radiator goes out and you're just pushing out straight up gas. Eventually when the, the uh, pressure goes back up to a higher range. So this is causing a lot of problems. But that's not all. Butane, ethane, propane, etc. are all heavier hydrocarbons than methane. Methane is lighter than air, so it rises. What that means is if you live in, say, a city, generally it's a city that has methane as natural gas. You live in a city, you have a gas leak in your house. That gas is going to rise to the ceiling, and if that gas is ignited that explosion is going to occur up top. It's going to push the tops of your walls out. They're going to fall. The insides are going to be facing up on the outside, and your roof is going to be lifted up and then fall down because the explosion, explosive pressure is going to be up where the gas cloud is, and the gas cloud is going to be at your ceiling. Now, propane, butane, things like that are heavier than air, so they will gather at ground level. 
What that means is if you live, you know, in the country in a rural area and you have a propane tank, if you have a leak from that propane tank, it's going to accumulate on the ground floor of your house. So if it's ignited, it's going to push the bottoms of your walls out and your walls are going to fall with the inside of the wall facing down and the outside facing up. That's because the explosion is going to be at the floor. It's going to push your floor down. It's going to push your, the bottoms of your walls out and everything's going to fall down. And all of these gases have another huge difference from methane. All of their upper and lower explosive limits are lower than methane, which basically means you need less of it in a space in order to cause an explosion. So a lower explosive limit is the minimum amount of gas that you need in a space in order to cause an explosion, and an upper explosive limit is the maximum amount of gas you can have in a space before it will no longer cause an explosion. So if it's below the lower explosive limit, there's not enough fuel, too much oxygen, there will be no explosion. If it's above the upper explosive limit, there's too much gas, not enough oxygen, it will not cause an explosion. So what does that mean? Well, let's just say random number off the top of my head. You have a 64,000 cubic foot basement. In that basement, you would need 2,816 cubic feet of methane to reach the lower explosive limit. So that's the percentage of gas in that area that you would need to cause an explosion with methane. Just for reference, the lower explosive limit percentage for methane is 4.4%. Now, if it's propane, you take that same 64,000 cubic foot room, you only need 1,344 cubic feet to reach the lower explosive limit of propane and the low explosive limit of propane is 2.1 percent so that's 2.1 percent propane in the entire room that means that there is a significantly less amount of time and a less amount of gas needed to cause an explosion in the same room with one gas versus the other and just so we're fully covered here i don't know if i've talked about this before in a previous episode but there are essentially three different types of gas explosions. There's a lower explosive limit gas explosion. It's not a not got a technical term, but it's how we describe it and how we describe the damage we would expect to see. So, as I said earlier, anything below the lower explosive limit means there's not enough fuel, too much oxygen to sustain a explosion. Now, if you were just above that lower explosive limit, you are going to have an explosion. And most of the damage is going to be pushing. It's going to be, you've got a very low amount of fuel available. So whatever pressure it's going to produce is going to be released very quickly. And it's basically just going to push the walls out. And that's going to be it. There isn't much, there isn't any fire damage left over afterwards because there's not enough fuel left in the air to sustain a flame. So once that flame front travels through that gas cloud, it's just going to cause some pushing. So you'll see stuff like if you have a lower explosive limit explosion, you'll have walls that are entirely pushed out in one piece. They'll just pushed out and fall over. You'll have the roof kind of lifted up a little bit and then drop back down into place. Things like that. It'll be relatively minor damage. I understand that it's an explosion, so minor damage is extremely subjective because I see fires all the time but it's relatively minor damage in the grand scheme of things. Now, on the other end of that, you have an 
upper explosive limit explosion. Anything above the upper explosive limit, there's not enough oxygen, too much fuel to sustain a flame in that environment, so you won't have an explosion. But if you're up near that explosive limit and you haven't gone over it, you'll have an explosion that is similar to a lower explosive. You'll have pushing. You'll have the walls pushed out in one piece that'll just fall over. You'll lift the roof up and it'll drop it back down. But it will be characterized by significant post-blast fires. That's because when the flame front passes through, it cannot efficiently burn all of the available fuel. So after the front has gone through, it will ignite available combustibles and you'll have a lot of fire damage post-blast. You'll have some blast damage, stuff pushed out and pushed away and things like that. But you'll also have a significant fire going after the explosion has passed. And then the third kind is in the middle of both of these. This is called a stoichiometric explosion. A stoichiometric explosion is more or less a perfect combination of gas and oxygen. The damage indicated with this is basically the splintering of material. These are the explosions where parts of the building are found three, four, five, six blocks away. It is so blown apart that you can't even tell it was a building anymore. These can have leftover fires or not. If they're tending towards the upper explosive limit, they'll have fires. If they're tending towards the lower explosive limit, they won't have fires. But at that point, it doesn't really matter because there is nothing left of the building. These are the ones that you see on the house or on the news where the house is in a million pieces in the neighbor's yard. There's tiny slivers of wood just everywhere. The ones where it's literally just the hole in the ground left. So that's more or less why there is a problem of what the actual gas is, you know, made up of. But that's all assuming that all of the connections leading to the actual burnouts themselves are properly installed and sealed and connected and have been maintained and haven't been damaged in any way. So now that we've gotten all that out of the way and we've had a crash course in gas explosions and gas makeup and how all that kind of stuff works... I'm here to tell you that none of it matters. And the reason none of it matters is because no one was going to be able to tell the gas was in the basement regardless of whether they used the wet gas or whether they used the dry gas. It's still important in determining potential leak sources because anytime something is worked on and then something changes afterwards, it's important to look at that as a potential cause. But it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because natural gas, burn-off flare, or provided by the United through the actual meter, did not have a smell in 1937. Naturally occurring, natural gas does not have a smell. That rotten egg smell that you have if you turn your stove on, it doesn't actually ignite the burner, doesn't exist in nature. That smell is added by the distributor. It's called Mercaptan. It was added because of this explosion. Because of this explosion, they decided they needed to add a malodorant into natural gas so that people would know it's there. So with that, it brings us to Thursday, March 17th, 1937. That Thursday was actually a Friday for the students because classes the next day had been canceled so that students of the school could participate in the county meet in Henderson, which was the county seat of Rusk County. 
Both academic and sporting events from all the schools in Russ County in Texas would be there the next day to compete in spelling bees and softball games and all that kind of stuff, generally to have a good time and show off doing whatever they did best. It was a normal sunny day. Over 1,000 students headed towards New London School campus that morning where the elementary school sat near the junior-senior high school. W.C. Shaw, the superintendent of the school district, was at the school that morning watching all the students come in. He would go around and say good morning to some of the teachers inside the building before school started that day. In one room, he witnessed a teacher writing on the chalkboard, Oil and natural gas are East Texas' greatest natural blessings. Without them, the school would not be here, and none of us would be here learning our lessons. A cruel irony about what was to come later that day. He then would go on to lead assembly that morning in the main assembly hall with all the students. He ended his speech for the day with how proud he was of his boys and girls. That's what Shaw viewed them all as, his responsibility, his children. Mr. Shaw would spend his day in his office right before heading out to go officiate a tennis match around 3 p.m. Ardeth Davidson was a 14-year-old 8th grader who was running late to school that morning because her mom insisted she wear a coat because it was still March and it still was cold in the mornings and the evenings. She was annoyed that she would have to change her softball uniform at the school because a photographer would be taking a team photo before they played the next day at the county meet. Ardeth had two best friends, Pearl Shaw and Dorothy Womack. All three sat together during the assembly and chatted about what they had done the night before and the weekend before and waited for the assembly to be over so that they could go throughout their day. After assembly ended, all three went about their day. By 3 o'clock, both Pearl and Dorothy were in the library where they worked in the afternoon, and Ardeth was in science class. Bill Thompson was sitting in English class completely ignoring whatever his teacher was droning on about. He was in fifth grade and had just discovered that thing a lot of boys discover. Just how cute that girl is a couple seats over in his class really is. The girl in particular was named Billy Sue Hall. Thinking quick, he wrote a note to the girl sitting behind Billy, Ethel Dorsey, asking her to switch seats. She agreed. Bill was directly behind Billy, able to flirt with her if he could only build up the courage. Margaret Seiler had a headache that day and had gone out to her uncle's car outside to nap it off. William Gregg had been sent outside with another boy around 3 o'clock by his teachers to clean erasers. That was to give him something to distract himself with since he was constantly fidgeting in the seat and there was only about a half hour left in school. Across the campus, the PTA, Parent Teacher Association for my non-American listeners, was having a meeting that afternoon in the gymnasium which was disconnected from the school. Many of the mothers of people in the school were in attendance for that meeting. W.G. Watson was sitting in shop class working on welding something. He couldn't remember exactly what. All he knew was school was almost over and he wanted out. He remembers his teacher, Lemmy Butler, going to grab a sander or a bandsaw or some sort of tool, sources say different things, and turning it on to check it around 3.15 p.m. near the door to the crawl space that was always kept open because that's where he kept all the wood for the shop class. That open door was next to that previously aforementioned 64,000 cubic feet of open space. They kept all the wood in there. He turned on the sander, and then everything went black. Witnesses outside the building all agree on one thing. At around 3.15 p.m., 
the entire school as one whole piece lifted up in the air together like someone was picking up a toy. They had just grabbed the roof and picked it up off the ground. It was hovered there for what seemed like an eternity, but was probably no more than maybe a second, and then it all came apart. Concrete, glass, wood, steel went flying everywhere. And then it all came crashing down. At the time of the explosion, there were around 500 students and about 40 teachers in the building. There would be less in the school at the time because it was a weird day, but that's the general figure of estimate of how many people could have been in the building. W.C. Shaw, the superintendent, was almost to the tennis court when the building exploded and he was struck in the head by a piece of debris. It knocked him out cold. When he woke up, he stood up and realized he was bleeding. Someone would help him tie a bandage around his head. He then turned and looked at the school and saw that it was in complete rubble. He would then utter the haunting words that he would repeat several times throughout the night. There are children in there. My boys and girls are in there. While staring at the complete rubble that remained of the new London school and the screams of terror, pain, and heartache that were only just beginning. Ardeth Davidson had been sitting in her science class. She was listening to the teacher talk about whatever he was talking about. In an instant, she would die in her softball uniform, along with her teacher and everyone in her class but two students. Pearl and Dorothy were both in the library. Dorothy was helping a schoolmate check out a book when all of a sudden, everything around her exploded and she found herself stuck underneath the desk of the library and a filing cabinet and a whole bunch of other debris on top of her with no way to escape. She could move, but the filing cabinet was the only thing holding up the debris. Pearl had been standing near her and was now nowhere to be found. Dorothy laid there and screamed and tried to figure out how she was going to get out of this meth. She was literally trapped. Fortunately, Pearl was actually nearby, well, nearish by. The explosion had lifted Pearl up and thrown her out of the library and into the hallway. When she got up, she tried to yell for Dorothy to find her, but couldn't because her mouth was full of dust. Eventually, she could hear her friend's voice over the screams of her dying classmates around her and went to find her. Pearl found her trapped in that area underneath the desk and the filing cabinet and was able to dig her out of the remains that she was lying in. Then their next option was figure out how to get out of this building without any of the debris falling on them and killing them. They decided the only way out was up. Once they got to the roof, they assessed what to do next. The only real option here was either wait where they were, which seemed like a bad idea because the building had just exploded, or jump, which also seemed like a bad idea because they were on the second story. So they screamed and screamed until someone saw them and realized they were alive. That man on the ground quickly grabbed some other guys, and they all decided to tie their coats together to make a net. Which sounds terrifying, because... I don't know about you, but jumping off a second story of a building that just exploded into a net that's made up of random guys tying their coat together doesn't sound like a good plan to me, but what else were they going to do? So they jumped, 
And, well, both Pearl and Dorothy survived that jump and the explosion. Now, if you remember, like I said earlier, the spine of the E was where most of the classrooms were located. In that area were two classrooms full of about 60 to 70 students being used as study halls that were being watched by a couple teachers. Every single person, all 60 to 70 students, and all of the teachers in those two classrooms would die. Across the hall, a math class of 30 students and their teacher would all die. William Grigg had made it a few feet out the back door when the building exploded. His first thought, get out of there. So he ran, but he didn't make it very far. You see, his two older brothers were still inside the building, and he needed to at least try to find them, so he turned around and headed back into what was left of the building. He would be there for a few hours, digging and screaming until he physically could not anymore. He saw body after body after body of his mutilated classmates. But the one that stuck with him was a young girl in his class. He could not remember her name, but it's kind of easy to understand why he couldn't remember after all of that drama. And all that remained of this girl was her shoulders and head. Everything below her shoulders had been blown away. He decided he was done after that, and I can't really blame him, and he went home. His brother Edwin would survive, but his brother Horace died in the explosion. W.G. Watson, the student that was in the shop where the explosion seems to have originated, would wake up outside of the building. He has no idea how he got there. He has no idea how he was blown out of the building. And he was only one of two students in the shop class to survive the explosion. His teacher died, and all but one of his other classmates died in the explosion. Margaret Seiler was still sleeping in the car when the school exploded. The explosion didn't wake her up, though. The giant boulder of concrete that smashed the entire front of her uncle's car did. She would survive. All over the school are classrooms where one or two or three students survived while the rest of the class perished. One student recalls seeing her teacher yell her final words of Jesus help us before the wall behind her collapsed, killing most of her class. Only five of the 26 people in that room would survive the explosion. Bill Thompson was just starting to try to figure out how to flirt with the girl in front of him when everything around him erupted. Bill would survive the explosion. The girl he tried to cease with, Ethel Dorsey, would not. The first people to arrive on the scene immediately after the explosion were the parents at the PTA meeting. It had blown all the windows out of the gymnasium and knocked them all from their chairs. They immediately rushed outside to see what had happened and were horrified by what they discovered. Most of them were mothers of students who were in that building. Some collapsed out of grief, some stood dazed and confused, yet others threw caution to the wind and sprinted to the pile to begin to dig at whatever debris they could move in order to find and hopefully save their children. The next to arrive were oil workers. They arrived in droves from around the area to help dig out trapped students. Many of them heard the explosion and thought it was a boiler until someone else came by and told them that the school had exploded. Trying to carefully pull the distraught mothers off the pile so they could get at it with renewed ferocity. Unfortunately, they would not find many students alive among the debris. 
Soon the fathers of the students inside would show up and teams of parents would be frantically digging until they couldn't stand in complete silence, terrified to speak and utter into the world what was very likely to be their new reality. Every once in a while, someone would scream and everyone would know a parent found their child dead amongst the rubble. The hand digging continued all afternoon, but soon it gave way to the understanding that if they wanted to continue, they would need heavy equipment. So local oil workers brought in their equipment from their drilling sites and set up giant floodlights to light the area through the night. Everyone knew, but no one would say, they were going to work until every little child had been brought out of the remains of the school. Not long after nightfall, it began to rain. Not a thunderstorm. There wasn't any lightning or thunder or wind, just a steady downpour of rain. As if the skies knew the tragedy that had just unfolded and was weeping along with all those parents who had lost their children. Throughout the cold, wet March rain, they worked to remove the debris and find the broken bodies of all of those children. All of the dead were lined up along a fence nearby the school. Parents who had not yet found their children would go by and pick up corner after corner of bedsheet desperately clinging to the hope their kids were still alive and it wouldn't be the next bedsheet where they recognized the face of their kid or the clothes that they sent their kid to school with. Eventually it would get to the point where they'd have to go back through and try and look as hard as possible to see if any portion of whatever remained of that child they recognized. You see, that was a major problem here. Many of the bodies of the children were almost unrecognizable. There were limbs missing, there were piles of hands and feet, and there were headless children, and there were children who had their faces smashed in, cut up, completely unrecognizable. They were decapitated. It was absolutely atrocious. There would have been blood everywhere mixed with the concrete dust and all of that, and it would have been completely soaked in rain. One father only recognized his daughter's body because of the colored dress she was wearing, which he had just given to her for her birthday a few days before. Ardith Davidson was recognized by her brooch and a softball uniform. One mother recognized her son by the pocket knife he always carried, and that's it. And this was the story child after child. They would search for hours to find a child, and the only thing they could recognize was from what they were wearing that day, and sometimes that was only scraps that were left. For hours and days after the explosion, children remained missing, only to be finally recognized by a piece of clothing. One family in particular would drive all over Rusk County searching for their daughter. Makeshift morgues would, had been set up all over the place as nowhere had enough space to house all of the bodies. It would take them until Saturday morning, fully two days after the explosion, to find their daughter deceased, only recognizable by her dress and the ring her uncle had made for her on her finger. In the end, only one body remained, and everyone believed that body to be Wanda Emberling. The problem was, her father adamantly refused to believe that was his daughter. So they brought in someone else to look at the body. And that person recognized her as potentially being the same size and age as his cousin, Dale May York. 
So they looked underneath the toe of the girl that was left and discovered a scar. That scar was the same one that Dale May York had had when she was younger. Problem was, the person they thought was Dale May York had just been buried the day before. So they exhumed the little girl who had been buried as Dale May York and made a discovery. Wanda's mother noticed that the girl who had been buried had colored toenails. Wanda had colored her toenails the night before the explosion. So that means the little girl that had been buried was Wanda, and the little girl who had yet to be claimed was Dale. In the end, Wanda and Dale would be buried near each other in the cemetery, where many of their other schoolmates were also buried. Impressively, that appears to have been the only mix-up of the entire event of bodies. With an event like this, with so much destruction, so much mutilation, the fact that there was only one confusion and it was very, very quickly fixed is an absolute uh, amazing achievement. It's a terrible achievement, but it's an achievement nonetheless. By the next morning, Friday, all bodies had been removed from the school and the 1,000 plus workers went home, leaving behind an empty hole in the ground where the school had stood. Then came the funerals, but again, we had a problem. Coffin makers quickly ran out of the medium-sized coffins, the size coffins mostly commonly used for children, and then they ran out of headstones. In the end, the official death toll for the explosion is 294, but this number is generally considered incomplete. Because New London was an oil town, many workers in the oil fields only showed up briefly to work the fields, then head back to where they were from with their families in tow. So it's likely that some of the children that died in the blast were scooped up by parents from out of town, West Texas, the actual West Texas, Mexico, Louisiana, and just taken back home without ever saying anything to anyone. And they would never be accounted for in the official tally. And that makes sense because a lot of the news reports have the death toll over 300. And I got to be honest, if I was an oil worker and my kid just died in a school explosion that far from home and I found their body, just take them, head home. I don't have to say anything. I don't have any ties here. Just go back to where I want to be and not deal with that pain around people that I don't know. The actual cause of the disaster has been debated, but it appears likely that the teacher turning on the tool caused the spark that ignited the gas cloud. The door was open. Everything is there. At the time, it was feared that dynamite blew up the building, that someone had purposely put dynamite in the basement to blow up the building. But this was never a possibility. Dynamite leaves a crater and would have been much, much more obvious. It also likely would not have raised the school in the air as described. That requires an almost instantaneous expansion of pressure across the entire school, which really could have only been achieved through a gas explosion because of how fast and how much pressure a gas explosion can put out. And then came the discussion of where the gas came from. There are only two sources of where this gas could come from. Ground seepage and a leak in the gas piping in the school. 
The area surrounding the school was repeatedly tested by the U.S. Bureau of Mines for any gas buildup over the next few days. Nothing was ever at a rate high enough to actually cause an explosion. So that leaves a leak in the school. Where exactly the leak was, we will never know. The building was torn down too rapidly during rescue and recovery for a full investigation to be performed. It is likely that no one ever realized there was gas building in the basement. But there were warning signs. For multiple days prior to the explosion, several students and teachers had been complaining about headaches. Margaret Seiler was literally asleep in a car because of a headache while at the school. And other students complained of blurry vision and an almost haze-like feeling in the school. They also complained of their eyes stinging in the school before the explosions. All of these are signs of a major gas leak. But no one would have noticed. There was no other way to tell. It's completely clear, no smell, none of that. It's basically iocane powder, just as a gas. As for why the school rose up in one piece after the explosion, well, the entire floor and walls for the basement crawlspace area were one big giant pour of concrete. So there was essentially no weak spots for it to break. So as the gas cloud ignited, it was able to contain the rapidly building pressure and push the school directly up into the air like one of those stomp rockets. So like the ones you fill with air and you stomp on it and the rocket goes up, that's more or less what happened here. Before the pressure became too much and shattered the building. This was likely to be a stoichiometric explosion closer to the lower explosive limit. There were no fires reported in the aftermath and it did a very efficient job of pulverizing and launching debris long distances. Multiple investigations were launched into the cause of the disaster, but call came up the same way. No blame assigned to anyone. The parents of all of these students wanted Mr. Shaw blamed. He was the one who chose to use the wet gas from the bleed-off line, but he maintained he had permission from the school board. He never denied responsibility, but he wasn't at fault here. No one could be. This is one of those times where no one knew. No one could know. Some of history's biggest lessons are learned the hardest way. This one was just learned at the cost of hundreds of children's lives. Eight days after the disaster, one fifth grade girl, Carolyn Jones, gave a speech to the Texas legislature asking for a Memorial Day and a fund set aside for the families of the victims with anything left over going to help provide college educations for surviving students. One quote from the speech sticks out and still rings true today. Our daddies and mothers, as well as our school teachers, want to know that when we leave our homes in the morning to go to school, we will come out safe when our lessons are over. In the end, that memorial would be built, and laws would be changed. In the aftermath of the disaster, Texas made it a requirement that a malodorant be placed in natural gas to notify people of the presence of gas. That's the rotten smell that comes with gas. It's called mercaptan. They also required that all gas hookups in every instance be installed by a certified installer. So no more just taking a gas line and running it out to whatever bleed-off line is nearby and installing it that way. It had to be someone who knew what they were doing. The new London school explosion quickly fell out of general public knowledge. And there's a reason for that. Most of that is because the parents of the children who passed did not want to speak of it. Many children who survived, who had siblings who did not, remember their parents refusing to speak of the children who had died. 
It made some of the survivors feel as though they had done something wrong or that they should have been the one who didn't survive and their siblings should have. This is one of the first major incidences of recorded survivor's guilt in a population. But because it was the 1930s and World War II was right around the corner, it was mostly just ignored and moved away from. New London would end up finishing the school year just 11 days after the explosion. The 20 or so remaining seniors had asked to finish school so they could graduate, and many of the students wanted to get things back to normal. So they did. A memorial was erected in New London. It contains the names of all of the victims in each grade, but there are certain places on it that are blank. All the names are listed in alphabetic order, but some parents did not want to be involved with it at all. So the engravers left those spaces blank in case the parents changed their mind or a sibling decided to have their name added. And it didn't really matter. Everyone in town knew who belonged in those blank spaces. So if you had a friend or a sibling or whoever and you wanted to go visit the memorial and rub your hand on that name, you could still rub it on that blank spot and know who was supposed to be there. But now you know. After all this time, the reason that there is that rotten egg smell is because one school lost 294 people in a single explosion. So when you smell that rotten egg smell, remember those children, remember those teachers. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can find me on most social media. Just search Disastrous History. And for those of you that were following along, uh, my daughter was born on May the 4th. Um, she's happy, healthy. Mom's happy and healthy. Uh, she does not sleep much, which is why this episode was a little late getting out. But I hope to get back into the swing of things now that she's out and everybody's doing well and all the whole nine yards. I appreciate you guys continuing to listen and enjoying the podcast. And if you have any suggestions or anything like that, let me know. I appreciate you all. As always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.